0: You're listening to the UnSiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. UnSiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to UnSiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with uh, Zena Hitz, who is a tutor at St. John's College in, in Annapolis, and also the author of Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an intellectual life. Zena, welcome. This this book uh, is about the intellectual life, but I guess another way of describing it is, is it's sort of about learning as a profession or kind of you know learning for its own sake. And this is a little bit confusing, I think, for a lot of people, because I think most people want to know what learning is for, what thinking is for, right? We want to know. What the intellectual life is for there's always got to be a for right there's got to be some kind of end goal there's got to be some kind of kind of purpose and you know higher education when there's debates about funding it usually the debate is about what is the university for how is it going to increase gnp right uh, how is it going to improve the lives of people and so forth and you Ask us to kind of examine those arguments and maybe step away from those arguments and talk about learning for its own sake. Is that even possible? I mean, does that even make sense to talk about something for its own sake?
1: Well, I think it is one of those phrases that can be easily misunderstood. It's a bit of a tagline for something which, when you recognize it, you recognize it. And if you don't, you don't. So in that way, it's not the most useful phrase. It's in some ways the best that I can do though, because it really is in a certain way defined by what it isn't. So it's, it's not thinking which is directed at a practical task. It's not thinking which is directed at a concrete goal. It may or may not, I mean, there may be goals within the thinking. So say I'm thinking about a a mathematical theorem. I'm not doing it for work. I'm not doing it to get a grade in my class. I'm just doing it because I'm interested in it. I want to know what the answer is. Now, in a way I'm working towards a goal, but in another way, what I'm doing is from the outside kind of pointless. That's an example of learning for its own sake. I, I I'm reading novels and I read novels and the characters stick with me and I ponder them, you know, as I'm sitting on the bus or the subway or what have you, or uh, while I'm driving. What's going on there? There's no reason to do that. It's not getting me anything. It's for its own sake. Another way that I would put it, that's a bit more precise, is to say, it's for my sake. It's for my development that I do these kinds of thinking. And that kind of development, I think we've come to undervalue. I think it's really the point of education of all kinds to develop ourselves as human beings. We develop ourselves intellectually the same way that we develop ourselves in art or music or athletics or any other human endeavor. But that's really what matters about it. It has, in a certain way, unfortunately for learning, all of these beneficial side effects. That is. You, you learn for its own sake. If you read about Einstein, for instance, now that was a person who just wanted to figure out the way the world worked. He didn't even have a job when he was writing his, I mean, not an academic job when he was writing his best papers. He couldn't get a job after graduate school. He was working in a patent office, but what he really liked to do was to work on his, on his problems. He's trying to figure out how the world works. Along the way, it's very beneficial. All kinds of things that he discovered is very useful to us in other endeavors. But that's a side effect. It's not the point. And we get focused on the side effects and we lose track of this dimension of human development, and which is really what I'm trying to describe and defend and do some work to restore it in its proper place in our culture.
0: In the book, you kind of summarize Aristophanes' play, The Clouds. And there's this scene where this rustic farmer goes in and Checks out what's going on in the uh, thinkatorium. <laughs> How did you, the word you used, right? And um, you know, you got these people sitting around studying the the farts of fleas and so forth. And and I think that you know that's kind of the view that a lot of people have about what goes on in in academia. I think it was William Proxmire who uh, came up with this thing called the Golden was it the Golden Fleece Award or something uh, for the most absurd. Research grant that the government funded, and there's all sorts of stuff. It probably was stuff on fleas and, and whatever. But even more so, like the humanities, I think that the external view is that it's, you know, at best navel gazing and, and at worst just the pursuit of esoteric knowledge, perhaps not for its own sake, but for the sake of just procuring the next generation of grants and advancements. And you spent time at university, you recount your early days in university, and I think you, you described what you were doing as kind of the transmission of correct opinions. This is the teaching aspect of what you're doing, transmission of correct opinions, rewarded with generous grades for the successful completion on the other side. Later on, you talk about Lenu in uh, Ferrante's books, and it sounded like you really identified with with, with her. Is that, are these fair criticisms of what people think of as the intellectual life today? I mean, is there is there some accuracy in this depiction? Are there some deficiencies in, in what passes for the intellectual life today in universities?
1: There are certainly deficiencies. There's even what I would call something like corruption. And I, I, to be as clear as I can about this, there's a way in which... I think most institutions are corrupt and always have been, which is not that interesting in a certain way. So people use institutions to advance themselves to make money and to uh, attain status. And that's sometimes a real good if if you come from low circumstances. You can gain a lot. You can discover your dignity. You can find all kinds of things to that kind of advancement, get yourself out of poverty, et cetera. But it's also can be uh, absurd, repulsive, pointless, cruel. Many of the things I saw in my experiences in mainstream academia were like that. Belittling outsiders uh, for the fun of it. One of my friends once joked that um, people went into academia because they, they were bad at sports. It's a kind of funny thing to say, and it's also, you can see what they're talking about, it's, it's equally as competitive Maybe more competitive, more petty, more cruel, and the outcome is less clear. So, you don't even have a beautiful game on a Sunday that everyone can love. You just have some books and articles that no one really cares about. Those are the stakes of the battle. So, that's going on on the one hand. On the other, our institutions are in a particularly bad condition now because of the decline of personal learning. So our our class sizes are too big. So there's a a, a factory flavor to a lot of our learning. And you can get out of the factory at a certain level. Uh, An elite graduate program in the humanities, if you're working in a good lab as a scientist, you can get some mentoring and some, some real training in how to do something. But real learning doesn't work like that. So what I think happens is the humanities, which are intrinsically interesting, to most people. Most people, if you give them a Shakespeare play, okay, with some notes, because the language is a little tough, they're going to love it. It's going to resonate with them, with their experience. It's gonna help them to reflect on deeper features of their life. They'll want to get in a conversation about it. They won't want the conversation to stop. But if you put them in the back of a lecture hall of 300 students and have someone droning on at the front and then have them memorize bullet points, they're not gonna be interested in Shakespeare anymore. So there's a material and an economic dimension to lack of interest in the humanities that I think people are not sufficiently attentive to, and that goes well beyond anything that all the pragmatists of the past might have complained about.
0: Yeah, but a lot of what you're describing in the book as intellectual life is is not taking place in the classroom, right, or in the seminar halls. It's kind of a, it's a solitary activity to some extent. To what extent is is the intellectual life one where you retreat from the world to some extent and get away from the world. To what extent do you have to kind of get away from the, the marketplace, you know, the, the pressures of the public realm of obligations of, of family and, and business and so forth?
1: I, I think you have to initially, I wanna qualify that later, but let me say a bit about why I think you do have to withdraw. Real thinking of any kind, requires detachment. You need to not be worried about whether the conclusion is going to make your friends uncomfortable. You need to not be concerned about whether it's going to make your grant or break your grant or bring in more money for the company or bring in more money for the department or whether it's going to be a publishable paper that you can put on your CV. You need to be able to forget all of that and just think about it, just follow, whatever the thinking is, wherever it goes. And that requires withdrawal. Withdrawal, not necessarily from the physical world. You might be studying the physical world after all. But withdrawal from the realm of competition, withdrawal from the marketplace, withdrawal from constraints that are going to determine the endpoints of your thinking. Because thinking has its own way of doing things. It can't be constrained that way. So you have to withdraw. On the other hand, and this comes out in the book, I I think I would emphasize it a bit more if I were writing it again. Real thinking is also a way of connecting with others. It's an engagement with someone else's thoughts, usually at the outset. Something provokes you, a conversation, a book, a theorem, an idea, an observation, and you think about it. And then the result of the thinking is something which You can communicate, which brings you into contact with others. So it is essentially really a communal activity, but one which requires this kind of detachment and withdrawal and a bit of removal from ordinary life. And that's why intellectual life has traditionally had, you know, it's been in monasteries, right, which are outside the world. It's been in cloisters. It's been on campuses, college campuses are often removed. The stereotype of the ivory tower is another example. You're stepping away from everything to a place where you can be detached. It's not a way to bury your, to free yourself from concerns or compassionate engagement with your neighbors or anything like that. It's, but it is necessary to think clearly, to follow arguments where they go.
0: Yes. In the book, you know, you, you use example, you talk about Einstein, you talk about Gramsci, you know, you talk about Malcolm X and others that had periods of isolation from others, right? Where they were able to pursue knowledge and pursue thinking. And yet today we, we have. I don't think it would be fair to say that people are spending more time with other people. If anything, today, people spend more time alone than they probably ever had and have in human history. Right? I mean, we have an epidemic of, of loneliness. We have a higher percentage of people living alone than we probably ever have had in, in, in human history. So, it, it doesn't seem like finding alone time is really a challenge or, or a problem for most people today. But it doesn't seem to be put to good use, right? Why do you suppose that is? I mean, and I guess the follow up to that is, yeah, later in the book, you, you emphasize how important communion is and how intellectual life builds communion. So that's another thing that I think is, is, seems to be in, in short supply. These people, while they're connected in many ways on social media and so forth, they're not necessarily experiencing the type of communion that you describe.
1: So I I think there's more than one reason for that. One is that the type of aloneness that's necessary is what Pascal, the French philosopher Pascal said was the, you know, the ability to be alone in a room with nothing. It's turn off all your devices, sit in the quiet. And what, what do you find when that happens? Chances are you find that pretty uncomfortable. Most of us do. I certainly do, even though I defend this state of being for a living. (laughs) So it's very uncomfortable to sit with oneself without distractions and to see what there really is there. That's one thing. Technology also, it's, it tends, it can be a medium of real connection. So it's not necessarily a realm of only superficial connection, but most of the time it's a realm of superficial connection. So if if you are classic social media obsession where you're using a lot of energy and time and attention for a few thin gratifications uh, a viral tweet um, a bunch of likes uh, something that really resonates for a time with a particular audience you're not really connecting with another human being in a, in a spirit of open-ended receptivity and learning something or sharing what you've learned with them, it's not really deeply relational in the way that even living with someone who you barely talk to is, I mean, that's what's so funny. This is a cliche, so you'll have to forgive me for it. We have bodies and we actually, doesn't matter to us more than we think. So, you know, being close to someone and interacting with them without a lot of conversation is in a certain way much more intimate than anything that happens on social media. And the kind of connection I'm talking about, which is really where you share your thinking with someone, you share your experience with something, you open up who you are as a person to another human being who may even be a stranger. Now that's strenuous and intense and very, very rewarding. But it's not something we come to easily. We need help to do it. We need support and we need practice.
0: So how can detachment from the world make connections stronger? I mean, it it seems paradoxical.
1: It does until you remember that your, your sort of default autopilot mode of connection is the high school cafeteria, right? It's how do I stand with respect to these people in the room? Where am I ranked? Am I in the cool kids? Am I in the not cool kids? Am I a cheerleader? Am I a jock? Am I a nerd? Who's better than who? Where am I? And it's, it's that aspect of social life, which is um, so poisonous on social media, that sense of ranking, the, the ratio, follower counts, the, the public humiliations, all of these things, they're all social competition. And most social competition doesn't really get much past yeah, your high school cafeteria, maybe your middle school cafeteria. Maybe it's too hard on cafeterias to describe how little it can be. It's that realm that we need to get away from in order to think clearly and to be detached. The way that we really need to relate to people, the way that we really want to relate to people is not competitively, but openly. And I want to say unconditionally, you hear from this person what they think about something you care about or you recognize something about their way of being in the world and that that can change you and that can be important and I want to be clear I'm not just talking about emotionally intense relationships so you know I say I have a colleague and we We sit around the seminar table and and strictly speaking, he drives me nuts. But if there's some question that we're working on and he says something which helps me to see something, I'm in communion with that person at a very deep level, truthfully, much more deep than anything at the level of social competition. And even though it's in a certain way a limited type of friendship because it doesn't have a big emotional intensity to it. And that's, I think, similar to the type of work that anyone doing something concrete with someone else can experience. You know, you're, you're contractors working on a building together. You're collaborating on something and each person is bringing something concrete to the table and you're united in this project that you all care about, that matters, that's really good. That's a, that's a very profound way of connecting with someone. And again, that's also not a, that's not on the sphere of, not on the playing field of social competition. It's something different. And intellectual life participates in that, I think most of all.
0: Yeah, I think you said that right, when you get rid of distractions and rewards, that is really what allows you to notice. And I think sometimes you, you know, you're talking about just noticing the environment in which you find yourself. But then other times, you know, you're talking about the kind of deep intellectual work that requires sustained attention, right? Which is kind of beyond noticing. It's, it's really more about investigating.
1: That's right. So I move over a range of cases, partly because I think that whatever the differences in character between, say, when things are really hectic for me, I don't have time to investigate anything. I, I leave my house before I get into my car. I look at the sky or I look at the tree that's next to my house. It's it's a few few moments, but I'm contemplating something. I'm reaching outside of my surroundings in some way and in, in, into them in a different way. That's a type of contemplation. That's a function of the receptive mind in some way. So I want to say that that's on a continuum, as little as it is, as apparently trivial as it is, with something like a mathematical investigation, a scholarly investigation, mm-hmm. an investigation that involves literature, philosophy. So there's a variety of ways and degrees of using one's mind in a way that's contemplative and that's involves learning for its own sake. I'm I'm committed to there being a a range of examples.
0: Now, you use the term leisure in the book. And I think when most people think of leisure, they think of, I don't know, time killing, which I, I would think of more as kind of distraction, right? So is there a sense in which we are squandering our leisure? I mean, the prosperity that we've earned, I mean, there are probably Huge chunks of human history where, you know, no one had the kind of leisure that we have available to us. Perhaps a lot of them would have said, "Hey, you know, if I get that leisure, I'm going to do exactly what you're doing. <laughs> you know, I'm just going to pop myself up on the lazy boy with a nice cold beer and, and watch some sitcoms, right?" But presumably there are plenty of people that would be thrilled to have the amount of leisure that we have and would presumably not squander it. Do we not realize how lucky we are that, that we have the the kind of leisure that we have? Why has that word leisure kind of gotten such a bad rap? Why has this leisure term lost its its original meaning?
1: We in the United States, and I think we share it with other Anglophone countries, the UK, Canada, and Australia, we have a particularly work-focused culture, productivity-focused culture. And it's that that gives leisure a bad name. The problem is... An ancient philosophical problem that Aristotle diagnosed, which is that if all you do is produce, then you never enjoy what you're producing, and then your life is pointless. The example I use in my book, right? You I know that it's pointless when I get all of my gym gear together and drive to the gym and find the gym closed. But I don't know it's pointless when I work and make some money and spend the money on what I need to do some more work and then do some more work and then take a little rest so that I can do more work. And I never enjoy the fruits of my work. That's cra- it's actually crazy to act that way, but most of us do it. There's a lot of, I think, interesting existential psychological reasons for doing that. I don't go all that much into it in, in the book, although I think about it a lot. Again, it has to do with that inability to sit still in an empty room. We're hiding from something about ourselves and we're avoiding doing things which are a bit challenging, a bit uncomfortable, but also which will help us to really grow and become the people we're meant to be. It's a funny thing, right? It's it's the reverse of what looks like it's going on. It looks like people are being very responsible and very productive, but in fact, it's easy after a certain point to be busy and productive and it's hard to actually really use your time and your attention in a way that's gets the most out of it for you and for everyone else so we waste an extraordinary amount of time and attention extraordinary and i think everyone who's faced with an existential crisis with a serious illness or deaths we we all know that's the first thing we all notice is how much time we've been wasting, how much attention we've been wasting, and how, what we would give to have some of that time and attention back to use the way that we wanted to use it. In a way, what I'm saying is, is very familiar, even if it's on turf, that's a bit unusual.
0: Well, you quote Augustine, and I love this quote where he says, business is the idling of grown men. So as a youth, he was reprimanded for kicking the ball around by grown-ups who basically did the equivalent except they they called it the public affairs, right? You know, politics and, and and business, it's just another variant of kind of kicking the ball around and trying to achieve status. Why do you suppose that is? I mean, we don't see business and and hard work that way.
1: I suppose what I just mentioned was maybe the deep inner reasons. We don't want to face emptiness. We don't want to do things that are difficult. But I think there are other reasons which are more immediate. That is, it's just autopilot. We just do what everyone else is doing. It's just what everyone expects. It's always easiest to do what everyone expects you to do. We all have a certain kind of social position which matters to us. And in order to fulfill that social position, we have to, to do all kinds of things which everyone else is doing. So there's a certain amount of just mindless autopilot in it. Why do people go to college? Now, if you spend a lot of time in a college like I do, now, man, do I go to a, I teach at a pretty unusual college where people are maybe a little more thoughtful about why they go there. But for the most part, no one knows why they're there when they come as freshmen. They just do it because everyone everyone they know does it. You know, and then what what are you going to do? You graduate, you get a job. Why? Well, that's because that's just what you do, <laughs> And people might think you're crazy if you say, well, you know, I, I don't really want to go on the career track right now. I think I'd rather work at a bar in the Caribbean. People would think you're nuts. You might learn a lot doing that. You might really grow as a person in a way that you wouldn't otherwise. So I think that's a lot of it. It's just, it's, it's the autopilot, which makes us want to just do what the people around us are doing and to stay close to them in whatever way that's possible and, and to avoid the risks. Involved in really doing something different, and those are real risks. I mean, I'm talking about the upsides of them, but there are also downsides. You can be isolated, you can become embittered, you can lose opportunities. There's all kinds of things that you really are risking when you do it. Uh, I just think that life on autopilot is not all it's going out to be, you know overrated. well,
0: well, you know you've you've talked about science as part of the intellectual life. But I think you're really emphasizing the importance of liberal arts. You're emphasizing the importance of, of literature and philosophy. And, you know, if we we're to think about, well, well what's the point? Uh, you mentioned that some of the students who have gone to your school have gone on to become successful investment bankers. And we can point to some folks that have been successful in business with liberal arts backgrounds and say, there we go. There you have it. <laughs> you know, that's why you ought to go uh, study the liberal arts. But what is so special about the arts, what is so special about literature? What is so special about philosophy and, and theology and religion?
1: You know, that's a great question when you put it simply like that. Literature, liberal arts, et cetera, they are engines of human development, human growth, very traditionally. The, why are they called the liberal arts? Not because your professors are all left wing, but because they're spent to Uh, set you free, to give you a kind of freedom. And among the freedom that they give you is freedom from that kind of autopilot I mentioned. Now, how do they do that? Because you enter into other worlds, you enter into the minds of other people, people of the past, people from different cultures or countries or social classes, people from a, a vast variety of times and places. When you think about it, it's completely astonishing that You can, through a book or a conversation, inhabit the experience of any other human being, living or dead. Now, you might need a translator. You might need uh, some help with some words. But you can inhabit that experience. Now, all of that experience is a wealth of possibilities. Now, Now, of course, because we're, you know, life is finite and we live in a particular time and space, not all those possibilities are realizable. You know, we we can only do so much, but when we're on autopilot, we don't see everything that's possible. When we're online all the time and taking in all of these agenda-driven narratives about how things are going, how things will go, what's possible, what's not possible, we are blinding ourselves to what's really going on around us. And the liberal arts are ways of inhabiting other modes of experience, other people's minds. And... It will inevitably, inevitably allow you to see real, concrete possibilities for yourself and for others in your real life. so it's it's the opposite in that sense of impractical. It's extremely practical. It's essential for for reimagining different ways of life and making things better. And the fact that its results aren't always visible in advance is a sign of its depth and its power. Not, I can, I can tell you right now, I haven't been on Twitter much today, but I can tell you right now what's going on there. I know it in advance. <laughs> like It's all the same old story. Now, I can't tell you what's happening in this crazy book on the philosophy of history I'm reading for one of my classes. Vico from the 18th century. I couldn't tell you. I've never read it before, and it's a weird book. Mm. I couldn't tell you what's in there. But I'm gonna learn something when I crack back into it. I'll see something about the world I never saw before.
0: Well, I mean, there's an approach to learning how to read in academia that often dictates what you're gonna find in the books before you even open them, right? So I'm thinking that you know, a lot of the humanities today seem to be less about discovery and, and more about confirming one's view of the world, or at least, you know, looking for illustrations of opinions that you've generated in other domains potentially you had a i think an interesting characterization of you know what happens in the classroom as transferring correct opinions to people this is not meant to criticize any particular school of correct opinions but it does take some of the whole point out of learning if if it's about receiving and retransmitting correct opinions it takes some of the work out of it too right it makes it Pretty easy to expose yourself to to ideas and books, right?
1: There's a lot of dimensions to this problem because, on the one hand, there's the problem of the correct opinion, the opinion that you know in advance, and that's something I think it's common now. It's again almost a cliche to complain about that on the left, that is whatever is called woke culture, where you know it's cited in advance what you're supposed to think, and then you're tested on how well you think it. But of course the the conservative circles that I know about are doing something similar. They're building communities where people think this more or less the same thing, and you know, the right things in advance and so on. But there's something more than that, which happens even in a, strictly speaking, open-minded conventional classroom. I mean, the, the kinds of classrooms I used to teach in, you present a point of view, or maybe you present two conflicting points of view, and then you ask the students for their opinions. And their opinions, in a way, you have to do that because you want to respect that each person in that class is doing their own thinking and starting from somewhere. But the opinion is just where you start. You've got to abandon your opinion if you're going to do any thinking. You've got to leave your opinion at the door and go inhabit someone else's mind for a while and then see what you think. And I think that we've really... And again, I think this is partly the economies of scale and education. We have got to stop relentlessly focusing on opinions. Opinions are really not where learning takes place. Opinions are like epiphenomena. They're like what's left over after your thinking has, you know, after you've stopped thinking or before you started thinking. And really, all the fun stuff, all the really interesting stuff is when the opinions are gone and you're on your way somewhere and you don't know quite where it is, but it's really fascinating and you're feeling things break apart as you go. That's the type of learning I'm trying to endorse and recover and promote as much as I can. Although it's hard to put it into practice in the current environment.
0: You know, we have the same dichotomy in in the business school classroom. You know, we have lecture-oriented classrooms where the student is rewarded for regurgitating the correct opinion. And then we have more of a case-based, debate-oriented classroom. But again, oftentimes it becomes a competition to see whose opinions are most compelling, right? It kind of rewards those students for, you know, making the more articulate or charismatic, or persuasive presentation of their opinions. But the generation of the opinion part, you know, is less well dealt with. And what I like in the book, you said something about the... Intellectual life is certainly about cultivating the self, but it's just as much about uprooting the self. And and I thought that was a that was a really good metaphor.
1: I use gardening analogies a lot, so your mind isn't a collection of shiny things that you trot out. When the occasion provides, it's it's a garden, so it needs, and anyone who's spent any time with plants knows it can be painful. You've gotta like really cut stuff back and you're not sure if it's gonna make it when you do cutting like that. You've gotta turn things over. You've gotta know when a plant's time is done and you have to put in some seeds and see what happens. But it's that kind of balance between, you know, the art of gardening and the lack of control that's built into nature and the nature of plants. That's my experience of the life of the mind. It, it's, not, it's not totally under your control. There are habits and, and customs and traditions which help or which don't help, but you can't control it. A lot of a lot of what goes wrong in the mind is, is attempts to, to really try to squeeze it into a preordained box. Mm. And that's one of the reasons why opinions, I think, are are so pointless. Yeah. So the gardening, we shall go with the gardening analogies.
0: Well, look, I mean, you talk about thinking for its own sake, but, you know, you can't just kind of degenerate into sort of a um, collecting, sort of just being curious about everything, right? Just having like an omnivorous curiosity. I, I find myself sometimes just to think, well, I'm interested in everything, you know, I'm interested in... In Handel and handle and hip hop, you know. I'm interested in, you know, I I don't know where to draw the line, you know. I I want high culture, I want low culture, I want science, I want humanities, I want social sciences. Use the word curiosity, and Augustine uses this this word, the Latin version of it, in a very different way from, I, I guess, the conventional usage. You know, is is there a danger of being, you know, lacking discrimination when it comes to pursuing knowledge?
1: I think it's a bit delicate because on the one hand, there's something acquisitive about the curiosity you're describing. So I don't know if you've ever seen these things from the 19th century, the cabinet of curiosities, right? You've got a little bit of this and a little bit of that. There's a shrunken head from the South Pacific and there's a, you know, a little bone from here and there's an artifact and there's a taxidermied bird. And on the one hand, you don't want to trivialize what the objects of knowledge or the objects of inquiry. You don't just want to collect them like stamps. On the other hand, in my experience, that kind of curiosity, that kind of acquisitiveness can often be a part of a robust intellectual life. So you can have a certain love of certain kinds of facts, certain kinds of intellectual dramas, certain kinds of lists, You can love catalogs. You can love variety, and that can all be a part of you're really thinking about something and and exploring the world. the The question is about which you know what's subjugated to what. So, are you collecting all this stuff to impress people at parties, or are you collecting all this stuff because you never know what little piece of information, what little word, what little insight would whatever it is, you never know when that's going to be useful for some thinking. I mean, I think about libraries this way too. I think libraries are not always well understood. You know, you can have a book in a library, it can sit there for decades and no one can use it. It should still be there because in some moment that book is going to be exactly what someone needs to do the thinking that they need to do. So thinking has a different kind of economy than other things. And it You need to have a kind of gratuitous, excessive interest in things because you don't always know in advance what's going to be useful. On the other hand, you can get into this thing where it's all about show. It's all about entertainment. You know, you can diminish it to entertainment or to show. And that's, that's not the fullest kind of intellectual life. But in my experience, people move pretty quickly between one side and the other. So I think a lot about nine-year-olds, you know, who they know everything about Hurricane Alley and the 17 species of penguin. And in a certain way, they don't know anything, right? How do they know? They don't know any of that stuff is true. They just heard it somewhere and they (laughs) they memorize it. On the other hand, there's something in it, which I think is, there's some kind of hunger for understanding that's behind that, that I think is really important and, and worthy, worthy of honoring and cherishing.
0: Yeah, but you talk about, you know, when people say that curiosity for its own sake or experience for its own sake, that this can essentially distract people from figuring out what exactly is important. And I remember a couple of examples you use about how people will ignore the the beauty in their backyard in order to seek out, you know, Mount Kilimanjaro. and And I thought, well, part of it is because they want to put it up on their Instagram. Part of it is because they want to be able to brag about it to others, the, the love of spectacle that you talk about. But it seems like part of it is even if those people didn't exist, maybe they exist in, as imaginary observers, but, but people when, when they're pursuing these exotic things, they're, they're, they're doing it because their self-image to some extent is dependent on thinking that they're doing these wild, you know, crazy things.
1: I think that's right. So it can be a self-image. It can even, I mean, it's not limited to the age of Instagram as the fact that it's emerging in Augustine, you know, from the 6th century AD shows. Or it was an example I was talking to a student about today in, in Dante's Inferno. You know, Ulysses is seen sort of, you know, he makes it home after that long journey of 10 years. And then he goes out again. He just wants to see some more stuff. And that you can see that there can be a point where there's something really empty about it. Just the same way that if you, if you know people who, you know, they've got, it's not just Mount Kilimanjaro, it's, you know, they've also been to Machu Picchu and then they've also been to, you know, they go to all the most, trip after trip to the most beautiful place in the world. And you start to wonder what they're really taking in from all this. Like what's, where's the learning that's taking place? You know, is it just a very expensive, very elaborate form of Netflix or something? You know, it's just stuffing your stuffing your senses with experiences that that feel in some way like learning, but you're not actually growing. And again, there's discernment here because in young people, I think stuff like that is more useful. You know, you can be a time in your life for exploration, and sometimes people don't do it when they're young, so they have to do it when they're older, but. It's time limited that kind of hmm. let's just see what experiences cross my way without direction, and at some point you need direction to grow
0: well, you talk about the virtue of of seriousness, I was wondering if you could talk about this because seriousness sounds kind of grim, like who wants to spend all their time doing serious stuff right what what do you I want to know what you mean about that and and then you know another thing you talk about is this idea of restlessness, and restlessness is something which. I guess some people would think of it as a bad thing and some people might think of it as a good thing, right? So, you know, restless curiosity, sometimes we think of that as a virtue, but then again, oftentimes we think of restlessness as a psychological problem, right? Like this person hasn't found their center. They don't know kind of what their life is for. It's a problem. So are there, are there different types of, of restlessness, right? Some which can motivate you towards good things and others, which are kind of a, a, I don't know, diagnostic of some inner problem.
1: Yeah, I think there are different forms of restlessness. I I think I was trying just now to, to suggest that. So there's the restlessness of Ulysses or the restlessness of the decadent world traveler, which just, you know, you don't even know what they're getting uh-huh. after the, the 12th trip to the 13th exotic location. You don't quite know what they're getting out of anymore. Then again, there's also restlessness where it's restlessness in a direction, that is. It's restlessness to grow more. And that I think is good because we're never finished. There's never a place of perfection where we're supposed to rest. The virtue of seriousness is the desire for more that goes in a direction. So it's more depth, more reality, more understanding. It's a bit hard to be concrete about it. I, you know, it's one of those things where you, you know, you know it when you see it, and it surprised me a bit when it came up in the book. I wasn't, I wasn't expecting it to. I wanted to talk about curiositas, the Augustine term, and and this intellectual life as entertainment, and then I I realized I needed to talk about what what the alternative was. You know, my example was someone like Dorothy Day. She read books about. She was a middle class person. She read books about the poor and then she wanted to be with them. She wanted to get to know them. She didn't just want to volunteer, she wanted to actually live a life of poverty. And that, once you embark on a journey like that, it's almost intrinsically restless because, you know, there's always more in the direction that you're going. That's one type of example. Or, Malcolm X, is another example in the book where, you know, he gets sent to prison for theft. He reads the entire prison library, undergoes a major conversion, becomes a Muslim, becomes an activist, becomes a disciplined, focused person dedicated to the betterment of black people in the U.S. And then he changes his mind. You know, he decides that the people that he's joined are not good and that he needs a broader, more humanistic kind of approach. What does it take for someone like that who's very famous and very well-placed to change their mind? It's got to be that they're always pushing at the boundaries. They're always looking for something more. They're always pushing their imagination a little further. And that kind of restlessness, I think, is good. That's the kind of restlessness of seriousness where, you know, you maybe you sit with something for practical reasons, but you always wonder what more there is. You're always looking for some other dimension in which to develop or further further ways to travel along the way that you already have developed.
0: Now, you know, there's that famous quote by Teddy Roosevelt about the man in the arena. That seems to encapsulate a very American view of virtue, which is if you're on the sidelines reading books, you're not actually impacting the world. Of course, Teddy Roosevelt read a lot of books. (laughs) And, you know, Malcolm X and Doris Day, you know, they didn't sit around and just read books all the time. So, you know, is there... I don't know some virtue in balancing one's life of the mind and and one's kind of life in in the arena so to speak. I mean, I spent all I spent all my time kind of reading, teaching, reading, teaching, reading, teaching and and you know, I wonder, hey, where where is that arena? I mean, is the university an arena or I don't I'm not really sure if it is or it isn't.
1: I'm going to stick my neck out and say that the arena is with people and the real goods that people have the real needs that people have that's the arena, so I teach in a little tiny school where we read a bunch of books that officially no one cares about anymore. I mean the arena because I can see that my students need this type of learning, and there's various things I can do to help them, so it's very nitty gritty and concrete it's not there's nothing sidelines about it, really no there's different degrees of sideline. I mean, there are people from countries which are really being, so my students are from countries that are torn by conflict or have really serious issues and they want to go back and do something to make people's lives better. Now, that's also in the arena, but I don't really know that it's more in the arena than what I'm doing. We're all given, a, we all have a certain trajectory in life, something Cardinal Newman said, you know, we're we're a link between persons. That web of connections gives us certain opportunities and certain obligations. And it's easy for us to pretend those don't exist, especially in the social media world where everything happens on equal footing. You know, there's some stupid scandal. You know, there's celebrity gossip. There's a war in Eastern Europe. It's all on the same footing. And then, you know, it's your friend dying of cancer. That's all on the same footing. But it's not. It's really not on the same footing. So part of what the intellectual life is there for, it's it's not the only way to do it, but it's one way to do it. It's to, to keep ourselves in the reality where we really are and connected to the people to whom we really are connected. And I think when we do that, we are in the arena. And a lot of times when people say And I think this was true for myself when I I had a I've got to be in the arena moment. In fact, I remember being at a panel. I was a grad student in Princeton and uh, the World Trade Center had just been attacked. And there was this panel on the war in Afghanistan. And they invited people from all over the spectrum, expected there'd be controversy. There was no controversy. Everyone wanted to go to war in Afghanistan, including the pacifists. Everyone wanted to go. And then one of the guys I remember said, you know, there's a time to stand on the sidelines and it gives a Teddy Roosevelt quote, you know, and there's time to be in the arena. I was like, yes, that's what I want. But you know what I think? I think I wanted more like what the song in Hamilton is, right? You want to be in the room where it happens. You want to be in the place where the people who sound important and seem important are functioning. That's not the same as the realm of action. And And you can waste a lot of time these days pretending you're in... The center of things, and ignoring the people with whom you are actually in a network, to whom you can actually do some real good, and for whom you can do some real good. I just think we we just need to always be trying to to see that clearly, and it, it's it's constant work. It's easy to lose track of.
0: Now, look, you you to some extent kind of stepped off the the treadmill, so to speak, when when you you left one type of academia and entered another type of of academia. In the book you you talk about that process and kind of how you made that decision. Isn't that some in some sense kind of stepping out of that arena? Did you feel at any point that you were leaving this where all the competition was happening, where all the action was happening and was there any concern that you would then somehow render yourself no longer part of the conversation?
1: It definitely felt that way and I think Plenty of people around me thought that I was, you know, because I I didn't just go from one part of academia to another immediately. I spent three years in a religious community in rural Canada. I was really nowhere as far as the world was concerned, you know. And I left my job. I sold my furniture. It was a very very remote and humble form of life for someone like me. And three years is it's not a super long time, but it's also not a really short time. It's substantial. It definitely felt like. I was stepping away from the realm in which my talents were thought to be most useful, which was high-end academia, stepping off the high career track, losing access to wealth and prestige of a kind that might be leveraged for one thing or another. Um, You know, at the time, I really had to do it. Anyone who's been through a really serious early midlife, mid-midlife, late midlife crisis knows that sometimes you really just can't keep on doing what you're doing anymore it becomes psychologically almost impossible and that was the situation I was in so I could not do it anymore it felt totally meaningless and I needed to be in a space where I could really think clearly about my life and what mattered about it and I found that so and then I think truthfully looking back I think I entered the arena it didn't look that way but I, I think I was preoccupied with a bunch of stuff that didn't really matter very much. And it, it took those three years of being in a, a way of life that was very concrete, very directed at particular people to understand how, how exactly my talents and my gifts and my education and so on would best be used. It looked from the outside like leaving the arena, but from the inside, it felt more like going into it, becoming real, doing something for real.
0: Well, you mentioned that at one point you you decided that you needed you needed a religion. Yeah. Right? And I mean, that's not a typical, you, you know, conversion story. It seems very pragmatic. It seems very, I don't know, William James-esque or maybe even Pascalian to some degree, right? Why did you decide that, that you needed a religion? And, you know, is this something you would advise people? Could you write a kind of a self-help book, you know, how to... <laughs> How to become religious, you know, in four easy steps?
1: You know, I actually don't know whether it is so uncommon. I think there are people, it's a bit more, a bit unusual for a single person, more common for someone, you know, you have kids and you're like, geez, we've got kids now, we need a religion. What are we, we going to do? Got to go to some church rather. or other, or got to get in touch with our ancestral religion if it's not a church. So I don't think it's that unusual. It was maybe a bit unusual for someone who's who's supposed to be this big intellectual. You know, I'm supposed to stay up all night reading Thomas Aquinas and be persuaded that the Christian God is real and then, you know, coming out. So for me, it wasn't like that. You know, I, I felt an affinity with religious people from the time I was in college. I didn't grow up around people with religion. No one in my family had any religion. All of my grandparents are atheists. As soon as I met religious people, I liked them and I wanted to be around them. And over several years, being an undergraduate and then being in graduate school, and the same thing happening, so that all of my closest friends are religious, something said, something in me said, Well, this is ridiculous. Like, why don't you take seriously what this means and figure out how to be an adult about it and not just kind of uh, drift? So that was the kind of decision it was. I think religion people's experiences are so distinctive that it's hard to give general advice. There are people who've grown up in very religious environments that were very toxic in one way or another, and they've got a very different way of finding religion than I did. There are more and more people, I think, who are growing up the way I did for whom maybe my story can be useful. Um, but in my generation, it was pretty unusual. Most people grew up with more religion than than I did.
0: Well, I, I think certainly in large parts of Contemporary academia and in the intellectual world, the idea of, you know, the intellectual life and the religious life, those two would would seem in many ways to be in conflict. Why do you suppose that is?
1: It's social class. So in our culture, religion is for working class, lower class people. And the higher you go, the less religion you have, the fewer commitments your religion requires of you. So I I think it's it's something I think about sometimes it's the unspoken obstacle to diversity which is supposed to be the thing that all the universities want but if if the population you're you're trying to integrate is very religious and they have to leave their religion at the door when they get there that's going to make it very difficult to assimilate so it's I think it's a very very serious problem for our political community, our academic communities, that we treat not having a religion as a bit of a a gatekeeping thing. It's like, you can have that religion that your your parents gave you, just don't talk about it, don't bring it to work, don't teach about it, don't write about it. And it's very unhealthy for everyone involved. And one of the things I've discovered by just being a bit open, not by only talking to religious people, but just by saying, well, look, this is who I am. I, I'm i Roman Catholic, and I believe in God. I think God acts in my life in certain ways. One of the things that happens is that you discover that a lot of these people who seem so hostile and so closed off to it are, in fact, very interested. They're not necessarily going to become religious, but they like to hear about people who live differently and who have a different dimension to their life. So I, I'd encourage anyone of faith who's who feels that sense of, having to keep it uh, locked up just to just just let it out not don't make a big deal out of it don't go on the don't go on a rampage don't don't try to tear the walls down just say what you think little by little until it gets easier and i think i think you'll find that there's less hostility than you think there is there's a few people who make everything difficult but there's a lot of people out there who have more mixed feelings and you don't find that out until you start being more open
0: now, you do a particular type of teaching that's very labor-intensive, let's say. Difficult to scale is what we would say in, in Silicon Valley. You teach in the seminar method, very small classes, lots of kind of hands-on instruction. This is sort of disappearing in, in large universities, or certainly disappearing in those areas where, you know, in the classes that people actually want to take. If it's a small class, that's usually because nobody wants to take it, right, <laughs> at a big university. And I'm at a university that's pretty well funded, that has lots of resources. But I think our deans and provosts would say there's just no way that you could ever run an educational institution the the way you describe. Um, Is there a way that we can take this method of instruction and, and scale it? You know, I always think that my job is not to teach people as much as it is to teach them how to go and teach each other, because that's really all I can do.
1: I I didn't write a policy educational policy book for a reason. I I don't have that kind of expertise. I just try to relate my experience and then hope that someone can use it to help figure out how to do something else. So I have a couple of thoughts. One thought is you can have that kind of intimacy and cut other kinds of expenses. So, you know, I, I started a nonprofit last year, where we have Um, great books, non-credit adult education online. So we've, we've cut out all the accrediting administrative grading, et cetera, aspects of teaching degree granting organizations. You cut yourself free from all of that. You don't have a campus. You use zoom, you keep the group small. That's one way of, of scaling up. Now we don't charge anything. We're still we're a charity organization. We're supported by philanthropy and by donations of our readers. So I I think honestly there's not going to be a real re- a, a real way to scale it until there's a bit of a a change of heart as to um, what a nonprofit institution is for. It's To support stuff that can't survive in the market, and we we treat nonprofits like businesses and there's some common sense reason to do that. I mean, there's no reason. You, know, you don't want to waste money. And if you can pull in some money, that's good. I mean, I'm not not hostile to basic business principles. But it goes back to Adam Smith, who said, the reason why you need education is because the division of labor diminishes human beings to the point where their lives are worth essentially. <laughs> and so you need to you need to support education, and it can't be supported by the market. It has to be either a public utility or it has to be supported by philanthropy. And I just think that's the answer, and I I don't think that beating around the bush and and cutting compromises is going to be enough. We're in a quite serious situation. Our educational institutions, I think, it think gets very grave, and we have to be willing to rethink things which really seem obvious. And among those things are you know what. What's a nonprofit institution for? What's a public institution for? We've we're so accustomed now to public institutions pouring money into private companies that make tons of profit. We we don't we don't remember the distinction anymore between what's really a public good that needs independent support, philanthropic support, state support, and an organization which can really run on its own fuel and doesn't need support from the outside. It can sink or swim in the market, and that's healthy and good. So that's the kind of thinking I'm trying, however fruitlessly, however quixotically, to, to restore.
0: Well, well, some would argue that universities do support activities that can't survive in the market, namely, you know, a lot of research that often doesn't get read or, you know, doesn't really go anywhere, but it serves the purpose of, you know, providing the fuel for competition for status within the different disciplines. Maybe is there a way that we could kind of reduce the intensity of that status competition and free up some resources for kind of more more teaching in in our universities?
1: I think there is i i I do believe in research, but I think it has a, a much too central role in our university. so I think it's it's healthier for research to have it be a bit more marginal. If it's, if it's the main thing you're supposed to be doing, if it's the source of all your status and all your compensation and all of these things, then you're, you're going to have all these incentives to produce more and more of it. And there's only so much that anyone can read and use. And research only matters when you read and use it. It, it, it doesn't, a database doesn't mean anything unless someone uses the data. And certainly in my fields, in philosophy, there's much more literature than people can read. So at some point, you've, you're doing something which doesn't make sense anymore, and it's time to scale it back. And I think if people wrote l- produced less and really had to think carefully about what they were going to write and when, you get better quality work, more valuable work, less, less to read, and a more healthy kind of conversation in, in all of the sciences, including the human sciences and you'd get better teaching. So that's an orientation, that's another, I mean, of, of the many conversions I'd like to see in the world, that's another one where we put our universities back on the footing of teaching and understand that teaching is, in a way it's core mission, and research is something which is a bit ancillary to that. It's important, it matters, it deserves to support, but it's, it's not the point of the whole thing.
0: Well, Zina, with your, your writing and your teaching, and your advocacy. You're certainly part of the arena. (laughs) (laughs) Lost in thought, the hidden pleasures of an intellectual life. Zena, thanks so much for joining
1: me. Uh, Thanks so much, Greg. It's been great talking to you.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes,